This is a musical revival. My name is Rachel, and welcome to episode 10. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. And if this is your first time joining us, hi, my name is Rachel, and this is a musical revival, a podcast where I talk about musical revivals. So every other week, I bring to you a musical that I think needs to be revived on Broadway, the West End, off-Broadway, it doesn't really matter. I just think that these stories need to be seen and heard and appreciated by audiences again. Now, I have to apologize. I wasn't able to upload an episode last week. Something came up, uh, so I'm uploading it now. And that means that next week, uh, on March 5th, we will be having another episode. I'm really excited for that one too, so um, keep your eyes open for that. If you want to stay up to date with the podcast, I have many ways you can do so. First, follow us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you wanted to leave us a review on any of those sites, that would be awesome. It helps me kind of tailor the show, but it also helps more people find the podcast and get involved in the conversation. And finally, if you're obsessed with Instagram like I am, you can always follow the show on Instagram. Our handle is at Musical Revival Podcast. I post some fun hints about what the upcoming musical could be on the Instagram, and it's really fun to see what everyone's guesses are. Speaking of that, after the first clue that I gave this week, a lot of people assumed that I was doing Starlight Express, and I just want to state now here in this moment that I will never do an episode about Starlight Express. I promise you that. Just another quick update. For those of you who remember, New York City Center is doing this great online series called Encores Behind the Revival, where they show you behind the scenes of revivals that they had planned to put on this year. The newest episode about Love Life has just been released, and that has Brian Stokes Mitchell in it, and I love Brian Stokes Mitchell, so definitely check that out. So without any further ado, let's jump into my last musical revival pick for Black History Month. This week's musical revival is... The Scottsboro Boys. Scottsboro Boys, the musical, is a really unflinching look at the racism that is so deeply embedded in American history. Um, So it's probably the most opposite thing to The Wiz I could have ever picked. But like I said in the Wiz's episode, I felt it was really important to start the month off celebrating Black joy and Black excellence and Black happiness. I think the Scottsboro Boys, the musical, does celebrate Black excellence, but just in a different way. This musical is going to take, like I said, a really unflinching, hard look at the history of America um, and how art was performed about Black people in America. So just a quick trigger warning, this episode is going to dive a lot into anti-black racism, anti-Semitism, and also sexual assault and rape. So just a heads up, moving forward, that's what this episode is going to be talking about. For those of you unfamiliar with the actual history, the Scottsboro Boys case took place in 1930s Alabama in the town of Scottsboro, Alabama. Nine young black boys, ages 12, I believe, to 20, were accused, falsely accused, of raping and sexually assaulting two white women. The musical version of this just attempts to tell the story of these nine boys um, as honestly um, and as earnestly as possible. 
The show opened on Broadway in October of 2010 and closed in December of the same year after 29 previews and 49 regular performances. Since then, the Scottsboro Boys has had a wonderful life regionally and also in the West End. In 2014, a production opened and closed in February of 2015. It received wonderful reviews, I would argue better reviews than it earned in America. The original Broadway production was nominated for 12 Tony Awards, but did not win any. The big winner that year was actually Book of Mormon. The original production was directed and choreographed by Susan Stroman. The book was by David Thompson, music by John Kander, and lyrics by Fred Ebb. Kander and Ebb, probably most famous, most people know them as the writers um, of Chicago the Musical. I just want to note that Fred Ebb actually died in, I believe, 2004, and that's originally when they were working on this musical, but it was put on the back burner, obviously, after his death, and it wasn't until Susan uh, came to John Kander and they kind of said, like, maybe let's get this going again. Uh, So in 2010, the production showed up on Broadway after having fairly successful runs in Minneapolis and off-Broadway as well. Now, the original production framed the story as taking place within a minstrel show. A minstrel show, for those of you who don't know, is an 1830s live performance. Um, It, in my mind, is kind of a precursor to vaudeville, kind of a traveling show. Uh, These traveling shows, though, starred white people who would dress up as black people, cover themselves in blackface, um, and portray black people in these really negative, terrible stereotypes. The most famous persona from this era was Jim Crow. Jim Crow was a persona created by Thomas D. Rice, also known as Daddy Rice. Uh, This persona made him a lot of money and made him very rich, very famous. Uh, So famous, in fact, that when segregation laws were uh, introduced in the South, they were nicknamed Jim Crow laws. We used to call it the Jim Crow South for a reason. This is important for me to point out because the writers know the history of the minstrel show and they know what they're doing when they make their musical take place within the context of a minstrel show. Um, It's really unsettling just talking about it. I can't imagine how unsettling it must be to watch it on a stage. Now I'm going to ask a question that I think the answer is pretty clear for. Why didn't this show run for longer? I ultimately think it's because This show made people really, really, really uncomfortable, and the audiences weren't ready for it yet. Two things to consider. First, the writers, director, and choreographers decide that they are going to tell the story of the nine Scottsboro boys. This case, when it was happening, divided America. It was the North versus the South. It was Black versus White. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. People felt strong about it in the 30s, and they feel strong about it today. Two, we're going to use the theater convention of a minstrel show to tell that story. A convention that was created by white people to mock, humiliate, and demean Black people. So not only are we telling a story about racism in the South, but we're going to use a racist theater tool to tell that story. In the New York Times review of the Scottsboro Boys, there's a quote that says, Scottsboro Boys the musical, similarly to Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson the musical, tries to frame this moment in American history as a musical comedy. I don't think that's what the Scottsboro Boys musical is trying to do. 
It's not a musical comedy, it's a musical satire. I would also say that Candor and Ebb's mega hit Chicago is also a musical satire, not a comedy. I know it gets treated like a comedy, but it's really a satire about the American justice system, who it helps, who it fails, and how we can idolize these murderesses um, when they shouldn't be idolized because they've actually killed people. The big difference between Chicago and the Scottsboro Boys is that Chicago has genuine moments of humor. For moments in Chicago, you can forget that Velma and Roxy have lied and have killed. In the Scottsboro Boys, you can't forget a single thing. Because it is so based in actual historical events, you can't help but think about the fact that it is based in history, that this really did happen. All of those jokes, no matter how humorous they are for a second, are grounded in how things actually went down in the 30s. The Scottsboro Boys is a musical that makes you uncomfortable from the beginning and does not let up. Quite frankly, I don't think in 2010, audiences were ready to feel this uncomfortable in a theater. I don't think that they were ready to really reconcile the history of the Scottsboro Boys as well as the history of the minstrel show in America. I think this show put too much in front of people's faces and they didn't like it. Ultimately, I don't think the Scottsboro Boys closed because it was necessarily a bad show or had a bad score or wasn't beautifully performed. I think it closed because it was ahead of its time. It pushed conversations that people, I think a lot of the mainstream audience wasn't ready to have, especially not through a musical. I haven't done nothing and I never did nothing since I never did nothing. This is a fire. Okay, so let's talk about that original Broadway cast. In the role of Olin Montgomery, we have Josh Breckenridge. Andy Wright was played by Derek Coby. Eugene Williams was played by Jeremy Gums. Haywood Patterson was played by Joshua Henry, personal favorite. Clarence Norris was played by Rodney Hicks. Willie Robertson was played by Kendrick Jones. Ozzy Powell was paid, played by James T. Lane. Roy Wright was played by Julius Thomas III. Charles Weems was played by Christian Dante White. And those make up the nine Scottsboro boys. I'm going to say the character names again, just so you get familiar with them. Olin Montgomery, Andy Wright, Eugene Williams, Haywood Patterson, Clarence Norris, Willie Robertson, Ozzy Powell, Roy Wright, and Charles Weems. Those are the nine Scottsboro boys. The next three characters are actually found within the minstrel show tradition. We have the interlocutor who is kind of the MC for the evening. He runs the minstrel show and everyone is supposed to listen to him. He's played by John Cullum and he is the only white man or the only white person I should say involved in this entire cast. Then we have Mr. Bones who was played by Coleman Domingo. Mr. Bones is one of the interlocutor's helpers. Um, he plays the bone castanets in a traditional minstrel show, and he'll also play any of the smaller roles that the interlocutor asks him to play. Then we have Mr. Tambo, who was played by Forrest McLennan. 
uh, Mr. Tambo plays the tambourine. And like Mr. Bones, he plays all of the smaller roles that the interlocutor needs him to play throughout the show. Finally, we have the lady. The lady watches the show like an audience member. She's moved and disgusted by the things she sees on stage, but she also participates in the story. She will hand things to characters when they need them. She will audibly gasp. She will help with scene changes. She's just always kind of around. I think now we're ready for the plot of the Scottsboro Boys. And I thank the Lord above that I was still alive as I waited for the 605. Commencing in Chattanooga. The show opens with the nine Scottsboro Boys, the interlocutor, Mr. Tambo, and Mr. Bones entering the stage. They come in through the audience. There is one black woman standing alone in center stage, the lady, who we will get to know a little bit later. She, along with the audience, will witness the entire show. The men arrive on stage and arrange their chairs into the traditional semicircle setup for a minstrel show. And our first song, Hey, 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 begins. The song starts out by drawing the audience in and allowing them to think that this will be an evening with a very lighthearted and comical feel. As the number progresses, things start to become a little bit darker, but nothing too unsettling just yet. They let us know through song that this is a minstrel show, and tonight they'll be telling the story of the Scottsboro Boys. Mr. Tambo says, well, that's a funny little story. Haywood Patterson, one of the Scottsboro Boys, asks the interlocutor if tonight, when they tell the story, if they're going to tell the actual truth. The interlocutor, trying to save face for the audience, says, of course, it's what we do every night. The song ends with the quote, Wheel about, turn about, and do just so. Every time they jump about, or wheel about, they jump Jim Crow. This is a reference slash a line taken directly from the song Jump Jim Crow, which originated with the performer who created the persona Jim Crow. As that number concludes, we transition seamlessly into the next number and one of my favorites, Commencing in Chattanooga. This is a joyful song where we meet the boys. First, we meet Andy and Roy Wright, who are boarding the boxcar to travel to look for work. Once on board, they meet the rest of the Scottsboro Boys and they all sing about their excitement. The song heavily features Haywood, and we get a real sense of his character, his longing to see the world, how smart he is, and how he knows these train schedules better than anyone else. By the end of the number, the train has begun to slow, and Haywood warns that the sheriff is coming. As the train starts to slow, Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones enter again, this time playing the sheriff and the deputy. They question Roy, Andy, and Haywood about a disturbance on the train. All three men deny being involved in any kind of disturbance. The sheriff and the deputy ask that all the black men on the train get off and they do a little bit more searching and find Victoria and Ruby hidden in a boxcar. Now, Victoria and Ruby are played actually by two of the Scottsboro boys. Uh, they put on little white shawls and then do an impression of white women whenever they need to become these ladies. So the sheriff asks Victoria and Ruby, again, the Scottsboro boys like wearing little shawls, what they were doing on the boxcar, have they been drinking, etc. Victoria takes the lead and tells them that they have actually been assaulted and raped by the black men on the boxcar. Immediately, the Scottsboro boys protest and state their innocence. From there, we go into a very short number called Alabama Ladies, which is the story of what happened to Victoria and Ruby according to them. 
The song ends with the line, they took your virtue and when it's taken, there's no taking it back. I think those lines sung at the end are very fitting for these characters. They don't realize it yet, but they can't take back what they've said and what they've done. What they've said and what they've done have, are, are going to affect the Scottsboro boys for the rest of their lives. The chairs are moved into a jail cell and we find all nine Scottsboro boys in there. Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones, as this sheriff and the deputy, tell the boys that they are waiting for a trial, but until then, they'll need everyone's names written down and their hometowns so they can, quote, know where to send the bodies. This is deeply unsettling, and Olin, in an attempt to save his own life, starts randomly pointing at boys, claiming that this one did it, this one did it, this one did it. Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones leave all nine Scottsboro boys locked in the cell. Now alone in the cell, Clarence asks the group, well, which one of you did it? First, accusing Ozzy, and then Willie. Willie, smirking, says that he committed no crime against the women, but he did steal the sheriff's badge. Clarence once again states that he's not dying for no one, and Olin desperately calls out for help, for someone to come and save them. Andy, ever the big brother to Roy, pulls him aside, tells him to straighten up, and says everything will be fine. They're going to have a trial after all, and once the trial is over, they will go home and they will be free. Ozzy says, they have no intention of giving us a real trial. They'll hang them just like they did his cousin. Ozzy says that supposedly his cousin looked at a white girl in the eyes and was hanged and his fingers cut off and sold as souvenirs for those who partook in the murder. Roy attempts to comfort Eugene, who begins to cry. Clarence rudely says that Eugene looks ugly when he cries, and Haywood tells him to leave the kid alone. And suddenly, a fight between all of the men begin. The fighting ends when the interlocutor enters and tells them to pull themselves together. There is a lynching mob outside, and they have a trial they need to get to. Now the chairs are arranged like a courtroom, and the interlocutor serves as the judge, Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones act as the prosecutor and the public defender. The nine boys are asked why exactly they boarded that train that day, and we receive a number of answers like, I was going home, I was leaving home to find work, my father told me it was time to head out on my own, and my personal favorite, it was something to do. Haywood Patterson begins the song, Nothing. This is a really interesting piece. At the beginning, Haywood plays up this very minstrel show caricature of black people. But as the song progresses, we see Hayward move away from that and become actively defiant of the interlocutor and his situation and him become actively angry. In the second verse, he gets really introspective and realizes that although he has done nothing wrong, he may be killed simply because he is black. At the end of the song, the jury of nine white men sentenced the nine Scottsboro boys to death by the electric chair. As the boys head back to jail and await their execution, Eugene attempts to run and the dogs are let loose to catch him. The rest of the boys have to strip for delousing. This is a process of cleaning someone to make sure they don't have lice. While they're disrobing, Hayward gives this empowered speech about how he is innocent and he is not willing to die for a lie. He throws his clothes at center stage and exits. The lady, who has been watching this entire thing unfold from different positions on the stage, now comes to center stage and picks up the clothes Haywood threw on the ground and exits. 
The next scene begins with the musical number Electric Chair, which is in fact the most unsettling thing I've ever listened to. Uh, so in this sequence, Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones sing this very upbeat number about the electric chair and how people will come from miles all around just to see the Scottsboro Boys executed. It's really disturbing. At one point, there's a tap dance break and they make the boys dance for them, specifically Eugene. As the boys continue to dance, the tension rises and rises, and each one of them is put into the electric chair until they get to Eugene, who attempts to run but is captured again. When the song comes to an end, we realize that the entire sequence was actually a nightmare Eugene was having in the jail cell. Haywood wakes the crying Eugene and tries to calm him down. Eugene insists that he has to get home to his mother. Olin warns Eugene that he's going to get the rest of them in trouble or put in the box if he keeps up this crying and yelling in his sleep. Tambo and Mr. Bones enter, again as the sheriff and the deputy, and an altercation occurs. During this altercation, Haywood gets hold of one of the guns and tries to shoot the sheriff, or Tambo, in the head, but the gun is not loaded. Mr. Bones, the deputy, hits him over the head, Haywood, I should say. Haywood collapses and... Tambo and Bones leave the cell. Clarence praises Haywood for his attempt at breaking them out, and for the first time, we kind of see these men getting along. Eugene asks the group if they think they'll die before next month. Eugene is turning 13 next month. He can't die before he turns 13. Charlie tells him he ought to write a letter home, but Eugene is unable to write. Andy tells the rest of the boys that his younger brother Roy knows how to write and Roy has written a letter home. Roy reads his letter out to the boys. In it, Roy asks that his mother and father send more paper and stamps so he can write more often. He wishes that they would tell his sister that he and Andy say hello. And he prays that they can come see them soon. While Roy is reading his letter, the underscoring for Go Back Home begins. This song is kind of a lullaby, but mostly a prayer. It is perhaps the most heartbreaking moment of the show. In it, the Scottsboro boys wonder if one day, someday, their luck will turn, they'll be released, and finally be able to go back home to see their families again. It is a really somber, sad, still moment. The moment is interrupted when Tambo and Bones come to tell the men that it's time for them to meet their maker. Hayward is the first to the electric chair, but before he can take his seat, the interlocutor enters and says they've received word from the Supreme Court that the Scottsboro boys will get a retrial because they did not have a proper lawyer. And this takes us into the next musical number, Shout. This song is really a moment for the men to rejoice. They have another go at getting the justice that they so desperately want and deserve. During this number, they have another dance break. And at one point, Haywood is able to take the sheriff's badge slash star, kind of like Willie did at the beginning of the show. During this number, while no one is noticing, the sheriff and the deputy haul Haywood off into the box. At the end of the number, when they do their roll call, the interlocutor realizes that Haywood is missing. Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones tell him that Haywood has been thrown in the box because of his behavior. The chairs are set up around Haywood like a box. He is in solitary confinement. While in solitary confinement, Haywood is visited by Roy, 
and Roy tells him that now is the perfect time to learn to write. In the next sequence, Roy teaches Haywood how to write as the rest of the Scottsboro boys do work around the yard. When Haywood successfully learns the alphabet, Roy tells him he can finally write a letter to any girl he'd like. Haywood says that he doesn't have any girl, but he'd like to write a letter home to his mother. The lady hands Roy a pencil and a red notebook and Roy hands it to Haywood. Haywood takes them and begins to write. When Haywood is finally released from solitary confinement, the interlocker asks him what he got up to and Haywood tells him that he wrote a story. This takes us into the next musical number, You Gotta Make Friends With The Truth. This is a cautionary tale about Billy, who begins his life by telling little lies about stealing cookies, breaking his neighbor's windshield, but ends up killing someone. In all the instances, he lies about what he has done, but finally, when he reaches heaven, he decides to tell the truth, and he's told that he's got to enter heaven the back way. When the song ends, it's now time for the second trial. The interlocutor tells the boys to put on a good show for all the nice people who are waiting to see them. He then introduces the boys to their new lawyer who's come all the way from New York, Samuel Leibowitz, who's being played by Mr. Tambo. Again, they're, Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones are taking on all these other roles because the cast is kind of small. Samuel introduces himself and thus begins the number, That's Not the Way We Do Things. In this song, Samuel frames how different the South is to the North. He, a Northerner, noticed at the first trial that the entire jury were made up of white men and how that kind of racism could never happen in the North. He says that his maid, his cook, and his chauffeur, who were all black, love him because he's always fighting for civil rights. This song is great because it shows you how Samuel thinks that he is above and beyond racism, but he isn't. He actively engages in anti-black racism while thinking he is an ally when in actuality he is like through his experiences, he is showing his microaggressions towards black people. He's completely unaware of it though. The song really highlights a great point that just because certain things, certain types of racism wouldn't be allowed in the North doesn't mean that racism in the North doesn't exist. Racism is everywhere. Maybe the North is better at hiding it than the South. Once the number ends and Samuel Leibowitz is brought before the court, the interlocutor says to him, I've never met anyone with the last name that ends with Z. Better change that around here. I personally think this is a subtle nod to the anti-Semitism in the South. The writers don't want us to forget that this is the same South, not the same state, but the same South, where a Jewish man, Leo Frank, was lynched in 1915. Now Victoria and Ruby enter the trial. Victoria says that she has nothing more to add and that she said what happened at the first trial. Ruby, on the other hand, has a written statement and recants her previous testimony, stating that they were never attacked by the boys, and this starts the number never too late. A very quick number where Ruby, like I says, recants what she said, and the boys rejoice because they feel like they're going to get out of prison, and we learn that it's never too late to tell the truth. Once the number concludes, the Scottsboro boys are ordered to wait in holding while Ruby is cross-examinated. During the cross-examination, Mr. Bone says that Ruby's testimony has been bought. The song Financial Advice begins. In it, they claim that Ruby, now down on her luck, took a bribe from New York, and I quote, Jew money changed her testimony. Again, the anti-Semitism is pouring out of this show. 
Now, inside the holding room, the Scottsboro boys rejoice. They discuss what they'll do once they get their freedom. Haywood talks of seeing his mother. Clarence and Willie plan to head north to see family. And Ozzy says, it ain't no crime coming from the South, but it's a crime to stay in the South. The interlocutor, overhearing this entire exchange, tells the boys that the South isn't too bad and encourages them to sing a song from their home, Southern Days. The song begins as an ode to those lovable Southern days and the Southern way of life. Somewhere between the second and third verse, the interlocutor says he used to love to hear the song coming from the cotton fields when he was young, just the way he liked it. He continues by saying that the least the boys could do is smile while they sing. So they plaster on these huge fake smiles and continue the song but they take it in a slightly different direction. They start to actually sing what those lovable Southern days were like for black people. Men being lynched, burning crosses, fear. The song concludes and the huge fake smiles they put on immediately drop. They are rebelling just a little bit more. The next verdict is revealed and the Scottsboro boys are found guilty yet again. Now, as they go to the chain gang, the reprise of commencing in Chattanooga begins. In this reprise, Haywood escapes from jail and remains free for some time. Olin, based on a promise the guards told him, decides to reveal which direction Haywood went. The guards had promised Olin that they would get him a pair of glasses for his eyes, his sight is increasingly failing, if he revealed which direction Haywood went. He reveals which direction Haywood went, they never give him the glasses, but they are able to find Haywood, capture him, and bring him back and place him once more in the box. The chairs are now moved into a formation like a bus, and we see the Scottsboro boys on the bus on the way to their trials over the next several years. They have a total of eight trials, and at every single trial, they are found guilty. After the eighth verdict of guilty, Haywood asks if they're so guilty why aren't they dead yet? As they drive down the roads, back towards the jail, the guards taunt the boys, saying things like, you belong to us now. Ozzy says, I'm free. I don't belong to anyone. And he starts to laugh. He then lunges at the guard and tries to strangle him, but another guard shoots him in the back of the head. Everyone is shocked. The stage goes red. The interlocutor immediately makes the boys return to the minstrel show semicircle, despite them really not wanting to. He then checks on Ozzy, who is completely out of it. He's physically there, but he will mentally never be the same. Now, Victoria Price enters to answer Haywood's question from earlier. Why are they not dead yet? In the reprise to Alabama Ladies, she says that every time they receive a guilty verdict, the commies and the Jews file an appeal and she has to come testify. Victoria has had enough of testifying. She says in the song, I am a white lady and I expect to be treated like one. This very short reprise, which is mostly dialogue ends and we finally get some semi good news. Samuel Leibowitz has managed to get four of the boys released from prison. Olin Montgomery, Eugene Williams, Willie Robertson and Roy Wright will go free. They must promise of course, never to return to Alabama. The courts allowed the four youngest boys to go free in exchange for the rest of the boys never filing another appeal. 
the courts aren't ready to admit they were wrong about the entire thing. Samuel Leibowitz promises that he's never going to give up on the rest of the boys and that he'll get them their freedom. As Roy leaves, he hugs his brother Andy goodbye and tells Haywood to write it all down, to tell the whole truth. The lady gives Roy another red composition book, which he now gives to Haywood again. Haywood responds, who's going to learn from it? And the lady crosses downstage in front of Haywood. The years pass and Haywood becomes increasingly frustrated that he is still in jail for a crime he did not commit. The interlocutor sings the song, It's Gonna Take Time, telling Haywood to just wait a little longer and he'll have his freedom. He reminds Haywood that it was only a couple of generations ago when his grandfather was a slave. One day, a bright black boy like him could do great things, but it's gonna take some time. Now, Samuel Leibowitz tries to convince Haywood that he should go before a judge and admit his guilt so he can receive a lesser sentence. In the musical number, That's So, Haywood and Leibowitz stand before the governor, and the governor tells him to confess, but Haywood continually says no. As Samuel and the governor put pressure on him to confess, at the end of the number, the governor finally asks him, do you mean never to confess? And Haywood says, yes. He will never confess to a crime that he did not do, even if it means he will never see freedom. Haywood sings, you can't do me. He begins this number by saying his freedom isn't for them to decide. He is free in his mind. The governor and Samuel Leibowitz leave the stage. Now alone on stage with the lady, Haywood continues his song with a steady anger that does not erupt, but is persistent. In the middle, Haywood performs a sort of soft shoe number and the lady rises from her chair to join him. She mirrors his movements. Haywood's hands are no longer cuffed behind him, but are free to move. He is free to dance. He is free to be. In the last chorus, the powerful words, what was a whisper is now a roar, are sung. The number concludes, and we discover that Haywood has been sentenced to another 20 years in prison. The interlocutor returns to the stage and tells us it's now time for the Scottsboro Boys finale. The finale number, The Scottsboro Boys, begins. At first, it's a very jovial, fun piece, but it soon takes a very dark turn when the Scottsboro Boys take back their power and tell us what actually happened to them. Willie says he was never able to catch his breath after the events. His name was misspelled on his tombstone. Olin finally got his glasses, but he found a bottle and drank himself to death. Eugene, the youngest of all, made it home to his mother, who sent him to a seminary, and no one is sure today 100% what happened to him. Roy joined the Marines, but later committed suicide. Andy was paroled in 1944, but struggled to stay out of prison until his last stint in 1950. Charlie was paroled in 1943. Ozzy and Clarence were paroled in 1946. Ozzy was never the same. Finally, Haywood died 21 years later in jail, but he says that he wrote it all down, his entire experience, and he told the truth. 
After the men reveal their fates to the audience, a new explosive tension builds. And now, as downstage as possible, they sing out the last chorus, bidding farewell to the Scottsboro Boys. The music is upbeat, exciting, and chipper, but the energy oozing from the men is not. They are angry and they have every right to be. The interlocutor claims that it's a happy ending for all and tries to lead the Scottsboro Boys in a cakewalk. They do not follow. He again prompts them to join. They again ignore him and start to leave the stage. He continues to yell, but they have decided they no longer will obey. They have told their story, the truth, and they have nothing more to do. Haywood takes up his chair, and Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones enter, and they arrange the chairs again now, like a bus. The three men leave the stage, and we now see the lady sat in Haywood's chair at the front of the stage, with a cake box on her lap. The interlocutor now has become a bus driver, and he tells her she's got to move to the back. The colored folk sit in the back. She firmly says, no, I'm gonna sit here and rest my feet. Someone has learned something from this tragedy. The lights dim, the curtains close, and the Scottsboro Boys is over. and there's a lot to be said about it. So let's just jump right in. First, I wanna talk a little bit about the score. So this score has some beautiful, gorgeous moments, but it also has moments that are deeply, deeply unsettling. Go Back Home, like I said, is probably my favorite piece in the entire musical. Uh, and I think it's one of the most moving pieces in musical theater. But then we have something like Electric Chair that is so creepy and uncomfortable and unsettling. I don't know how Kander and Neb always do it, but they managed to find a way to make a score endearing, but also unsettling at the same time. In the horror movie Midsommar, the scariest moments of the story take place during the daytime. We typically don't associate daytime with murder or any of those kinds of things. Typically, in horror movies at least, that stuff happens at night or close to the evening. In musicals, we don't typically associate the upbeat group numbers with the electric chair, with um, lying about sexual assault. Um, we don't associate it with any of those things. Typically, those things would be explored during a somber ballad, but they're not. And that makes us all the more uncomfortable. The other thing that makes this show so uncomfortable for a lot of people is the minstrel show. I know a lot of people don't like it, but I really find it interesting what the creators of the show used it to do. Typically in a minstrel show, it is white people putting on these stereotypical portrayals of black people. But in the Scottsboro Boys, the musical, there are no white people on stage playing white roles other than the interlocutor. So in certain scenes, like the courtroom, there are four black men on stage pretending or playing as white people, white women and white men, giving us within this minstrel show that is the Scottsboro Boy, 
a mini minstrel show, a white minstrel show. And within those small white minstrel shows, they take a moment to perpetuate white stereotypes, um, unflattering white stereotypes in the same way that they, um, the actual minstrel shows in history, perpetuated unkind and untrue stereotypes about black people. At the beginning of the show, the Scottsboro boys are willing to work within the racist confinements of the minstrel show in order to tell their story. As the story progresses, they become more defiant against the rules and bounds of the minstrel show until the very end when they abandon the medium altogether. Is this the creator's way of saying that you can live within a, um, a system or a you know, theatrical style for so long, but when you realize that that style or that system is not helping you and not getting your truth across and not getting you the equity and equality that you so desperately deserve, you have to leave it behind. I think this is it because at the end of the show, the lady who was never really a part of the minstrel show in the first place actively defies the interlocutor who now portrays a bus driver and says, no, I'm going to rest my feet for a while. She is done being a part of the minstrel show, if she even really was a part of it, and she's done living in a system that does not see her as equal. So let's talk about the lady. The lady, very clearly at the end of the musical, is actually Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks historically attended rallies um, to free the Scottsboro Boys, and obviously she would have known what was going on because it made national news. It was sent all the way to the Supreme Court. Everyone knew about it. To me, it makes a lot of sense to have her there watching the entire thing unfold because it really highlights and acknowledges the fact that in every pursuit of equality and equity, the people who came before us influence us. So the struggles of the slaves influence the struggle of the Scottsboro boys and knowing the story of the Scottsboro boys influences Rosa Parks to stand up. And understanding and knowing the story of Rosa Parks, it like encourages a new generation to speak up about their rights and about their freedoms. Everything informs the other. It's all connected. It's all one struggle. You're never really alone in whatever you're doing in the fight for equity and equality. All of those who came before you were there with you and you were just building off of their legacy. Haywood asks, who's going to learn something from it? Rosa did, Martin did, Malcolm did. Every single person after the Scottsboro Boys has learned from their trial, has learned from those injustices, and it has shaped generations upon generations. I almost forgot to talk about the interlocutor. So at the beginning of the show, the interlocutor has a firm grip on this minstrel show. Everybody is going to do what he wants them to do, and he wants them to do it now. By the end of the show, he has lost all control of the Scottsboro Boys, and they ultimately tell their own truth. But that's okay. He stays on stage and moves on to the bus driver. As the bus driver, he believes he can exert the same kind of power over the lady he did over the Scottsboro Boys. But this time, the lady is able to defy him far earlier than the Scottsboro Boys were immediately she is able to say no. His power, his hold is beginning to crack. Every time there is a move towards equity and equality, even if we don't win, 
we are steadily pushing back the walls and breaking down the barriers and taking away the power people have over us. won't stand still my hands in my pockets what was a whisper is now a rock. now while i do really love this show there are a couple of changes that i would like to see should this be revived anytime soon first and foremost I talked about the defiance the Scottsboro Boys exhibit throughout the musical. I think we could go a step further. I feel like the defiance and the anger could get a little bit more pumped up. Um, I know it like seems very steady, I said, but I need maybe just one moment of explosive anger throughout the entire musical before the ending. I just feel like it would really help um, the tempo of the show. I think if the revival is to happen, I want to spend a little bit more time with the other Scottsboro boys. I feel like we get a really good sense of Haywood, but I don't get enough out of Charlie and Willie and Clarence. Clarence Norris was actually the last Scottsboro boy to die of natural causes in like the late 80s or something. Um, so I just want a little bit more from them during the show whether that's adding in more um, moments for them to speak, to hear a little bit more about their backstories. I just want a little bit more about that. If I can't get that, I at least feel like the songs need to be divided differently. Haywood is heavily featured in like all the group numbers, and I think it would be great if we could split up the singing parts just a little bit more, just to give those boys a moment to shine and to be seen on stage. Something I didn't mention, but you may have picked up on, is the fact that there is no division between Act 1 and Act 2 in this musical. I think if we added those things in, like little scenes so we could really get to understand Charlie and Willie and Clarence a little bit more, that would push the show to actually have a division and have an intermission. Um, I know that typically when you have an intermission, it kind of kills the momentum of the show. But I think if we really want to give this story the time and the space it deserves, I think an intermission might be nice if we were to add um, other elements to get to know the other boys a little bit better. So I feel like I've kind of already answered the question, but I'm just going to reiterate it now. Why do I think this show needs to be revived? I think this is first a beautifully written book. I think the book is smart. The book is witty. The book is very pointed. The book is on the nose. It knows what it's doing. The score accompanies that and highlights it so very well. I think this is a show that demands excellence from its black performers. Um, and I love that seeing nine, you know, black men performing the hell out of something. I think that's amazing. Like my daddy hanging from a tree. Yeah, now, wait a minute. Okay, so here's the part of the show where I give you some recommendations if you are interested in the Scottsboro Boys. So first, you can read the book for this musical online. It's actually free. It's really great. You can just Google it. Um, the second is listen to the cast album. The cast album I have actually I bought years ago, and it actually features Brandon Victor Dixon as Haywood, not Joshua Henry. And I don't believe it's on Spotify, the cast album, but it is on Apple Music, and it's also available on Amazon if you wanted to buy a physical copy. 
There are so many documentaries and films you can watch about the Scottsboro Boys. Um, the one I like the best and the one that I watched to uh, revisit the show was The Scottsboro Boys, An American Tragedy. It's a PBS documentary. I think PBS makes the best documentaries. That's just me. And I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. Like I said, it was a heavy one, but I'm glad that we talked about it today. Like always, you can follow along with the podcast on Instagram. Our handle is at Musical Revival Podcast. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are a million things you can be listening to right now, so thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And I'll see you next time. Bye! Someday.